0: Here in this chapter, Samuel makes a final farewell speech to Israel because he is turning over the leadership to the new king. And at the same time, Samuel tells the people that they are committing great wickedness against God. Now, This is interesting coming off of a great victory that was achieved by their king. Brand new king and an emergency, and he came through. So it was like, hey, it worked, it worked. But then we find out why this is not good. And it comes down to this the people solved their own problem and said, God, we want you to fix our problem our way. And this misses the point of why this nation, Israel, exists. They exist for God's glory. And the problem is, they're headed away from that to futility and destruction, Now, we, as believers in Jesus, exist for God's glory, and God does not want us to solve our own problems. He wants to be glorified by saving us. So these are the things we're going to look at in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And here's what it says. Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now here is your king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or who, whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. Now, the first part of this speech to all the nation is an accounting of his time as leader over them. It says, I've listened to you. You have a king. I'm on the way out. And he makes himself accountable to the people. He says, let's settle up. If I've oppressed anybody, you got to tell me about it now, and I'll make it up to you. Did I take anything from anybody? Did I take anybody's ox, anybody's donkey? Did I oppress? Did I use my authority to profit myself? Anything. And amazingly, everybody says no. Now, you know, this is what leaders do. And it's not a slam against any government. The point is here is a public trust that a government, a government official, a bureaucracy, They're given power. They're given money. And it's a temptation to abuse that power and authority. And it's easy to do if you're not walking in the fear of the Lord. Now, I just saw a video. And it was some par- parliamentary subcommittee concerned with ethics in government. And they were asking a private citizen, I think he was the editor of Private Eye, Ian Hislop. And he asked him, what can we do to raise standards so that MPs will be aware of what is right and what is wrong and then do what is right? And Ian Hislop said something to the effect of, don't you think they better know the difference of right or wrong before you elect them into government? It's kind of a fair question. But some of the MPs uh, routinely deal with conflicts of interest and are sincerely surprised when somebody comes along and says, you know, that's not ethical. You're kidding. Now, all this to say is that's the situation that faces everybody in government. Money and power and the temptation to abuse it. This is why we're supposed to pray for our government. So that they will know the difference between right and wrong and do what's right. And they can learn either the easy way or the hard way but we're supposed to pray for our government now that's why you need to notice the miracle that's happening here samuel can get up after decades of public service and say okay somebody let me know anybody was oppressed by me did i take anything from anybody anybody See, he was open and transparent and accountable his entire life. And he's accountable because he walks in the fear of the Lord. It's a very little thing for him to be investigated by anybody. This is what the Apostle Paul said. He says, I don't even know of anything against myself, but I'm not the one investigating me. The one who investigates me is God. Can I hide anything from him? Can I put any spin on it? You see, if you walk in the fear of the Lord, then accountability is not a problem. And being open and transparent is not a problem. With the Lord, there's no stonewalling, no, I don't understand the question, or any of that kind of stuff. So Samuel makes a good leader because he's thinking of the Lord. This is all about the Lord. It's not about him. And then Samuel goes on to recount the history of Israel yet again. There in verse 6, then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and Ashtoreths, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubaal, Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. Now, Samuel does this a lot with Israel, he reminds them of their history. And the important thing about knowing history is that it gives you context for the present. That is, we didn't get to where we are in a vacuum. Suddenly, the nation of Israel appeared. Boom. In this land. There was a history and a reason that gives meaning and identity. Who are we? What is this place? What are we here for? Well, you notice, Israel's history is exclusively about the righteous acts of the Lord's and the thing that he did for the fathers that has effect in the present. Okay? So, You notice in verse 8, Jacob had gone into Egypt, and your fathers cried out to the Lord. There's a neat little compression of 400 years there. But there's a point to this. Why is there even a Jacob? Who's he? And the answer is, he's the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham, to whom God came and made a covenant. And said, I'm going to bless you and multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and I'm going to bless the whole earth through you and your descendants. And so when Jacob and his family, who are now about 70 people, go into Egypt, there God multiplies them and makes them a nation. And that also makes the Pharaoh nervous. They could turn against us. They could be with our enemies against us. So let's make them slaves. Let's oppress them. And then the people cry out for deliverance. And that's when God sends them Moses. A man in whom is the Holy Spirit who will save his people. So God brought them out of Egypt. God brought them into the land that they're in right now. So they're there to be God's people. They're living in God's land, and they exist for God's glory. Then the next part of Israel's history is they have this cycle of forgetting God. And going after the blessings that they want directly. Not seeking them as a result of their relationship with God. Maybe the relationship with God is a little complicated. It's kind of not fun. you got to do this and that. Uh, Who needs all that stuff? Let's go right after the blessings. So you go after the gods that are going to give you the blessings right now? Well, they forget the Lord. The Lord is not relevant to life. And who cares? What difference does that make? See, they lose the context of who they are, and then they lose the blessings. So God sells them. That's a really interesting uh, way to put it, don't you think? Because when you sell something like on eBay, you're hoping to get rid of it. God got rid of Israel. I'm not going to worry about them. Let them be ruled by somebody else. And these guys never get tired of oppressing Israel. Pharaoh didn't get tired of it, um, Sisera didn't get tired of it, the Philistines never get tired. Of beating up Israel. They think this is the most fun they've ever had. Is let's put Israel on the floor and then step on them. And finally, Israel cries out to the Lord. And they put no spin on their problem. They say, We have sinned, we've forsaken you. Please save us and we'll worship you. So then God sends a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit. To save them. This is a pattern. And God, working through a man, saves the nation and brings them back into relationship so that they can be blessed by God. Now you notice that Samuel knows who he is in the whole context of Israel's history. There in verse 11. Yes, God sent Jeroboam. That's another name for Gideon. It means let Baal contend. It means if Baal is a god, let him look out for himself. Let Baal fix it. But there is all these judges that saved Israel, and Samuel knows, I am one of them. That doesn't make me any better, any worse. I just know who I am and what my purpose is. And Samuel wants the nation to see who they are. They are God's people for God's glory. They're either blessed through their relationship with God or they're destroyed because of their lack of relationship with God. That is who they are. So that relationship with God is everything. That is their life. So we get to verse 12, where Samuel says, And when you saw that Nahash king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord, your God, was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired, and take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, as it was against your fathers. Here Samuel says that Israel has committed great wickedness against the Lord. And we see what the wickedness was. It's not necessarily having a king. But they evidently saw Nahash the Ammonite coming a long way off to the effect that, you know, this guy's going to be a problem. He's going to attack us. And they thought, well, let's figure out what to do. And they put their heads together and said, you know what? I think a king would work. And they all started going, you know what? I see it. Yeah, that's a good idea. So then they all went to Samuel and said, we want a king. Now, when they did this, they're ignoring their history. They're ignoring who they are. You see, they could easily call out to God, and God would send a guy filled with the Holy Spirit who would save them. That's their context. But you know what they did instead? They said, We got a great idea. We want God to go, I'll do it. We want a king. King will solve the problem. God says, Wait a minute. I'm your king doesn't matter. This is what we want. Well, you know, Samuel says, your situation hasn't changed at all. Yes, you have added all this overhead of having a king now. Now you're going to have a real bureaucracy. Now, that's Ezekiel, and we love Ezekiel, okay? Everybody here? Okay. Now you've added a king and a bureaucracy overhead to your lives, but your essential situation hasn't changed one bit. If you follow the Lord, you're going to be blessed. But if you disobey the Lord and turn away from him and forsake him, you and your king Will be swept away. Swept away. Powerless as the dust on your floor. It hasn't changed your existence, your situation, one bit. Now, what Samuel says is this is great wickedness, and now he's going to prove it. Verse 16. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord. And Samuel, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Now what I love about this is that Samuel doesn't sit down and draw diagrams on a dry erase board to reason with people and through dialogue and debate, convince everybody that they're wrong. And they say, you know, Samuel, I don't know what happened. I was blind. But the way you've described everything here on the whiteboard, I understand it now. What was I thinking? He doesn't debate at all. He says, you know what? It's impossible that it would rain and thunder today because it's wheat harvest. It doesn't do that. In this time of year. So I'm going to call to the Lord right now, and He's going to make it thunder and rain. And so He says, Lord, show these people that they are committing great wickedness against you right now. Soaking wet. Every single person is convinced we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. I love that about God. There's a God in heaven, and he says, you're wrong. He says, okay, I am convinced. So after all this, imagine Samuel saying there in verse 20, to all the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside. For then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great namesake. Because it is pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away. Both you and your king. Don't you think it's amazing that Samuel proves that they are wrong, they believe they are wrong, and yet he speaks so gently to them? He represents God, and God is gracious and compassionate. you know that God is not a bully? He's not a bully. And all Samuel is saying to them is, do not turn aside from following the Lord. That is the source of your life and your blessing. Don't go after these fetal things that can't save you. Now he's talking about false gods. And in Scripture, they're always referred to as empty, worthless. But they didn't go after idols this time. It was political. But it's the same principle. They're putting their trust in something. Well, not even a king. Can fulfill his promises. And we know that governments frequently do not fulfill their promises. And so we pray for the government, but we don't trust in the government. Which is ironic because that's what the government wants us to do trust us. We have the science, we have the data. But then we can look at other people and see what they're saying and consider the two and come to this conclusion. Maybe it's not about data, and maybe it's not about science. And so, We love everybody. We pray for the government, but we don't trust in anything. But we do trust in the Lord. It's a big difference. And we pray for the government because God can steer a government. To him, the nations are less than the dust on the scales, they're a drop in the bucket. He is the one that raises up nations and puts them down. And you know, part of our prayer time in the mornings is just praying against wickedness in government and praying for the government to do the right thing. And that's not wasted time. We pray for guys who are doing wicked things in secret to get caught And it's interesting that guys have been getting caught. Do you think God is answering our prayers? Little unknown people in some little tiny part of London. Could God be answering our prayers? Well, I bet you there are more people than us praying for that. But why not? God is not restricted to save by many or by few. There is no difference. So, we don't trust the government to solve all our problems. We do pray for them. Does everybody get that? We're not anti-government. We are pro-God. Now, here is the great secret of being God's people. And to me, this is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Look at what it says here in verse 22. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it is pleased the Lord to make you his people. Now, think first of all what it means to have a name. A name represents everything you should think of when you think of that person. It describes a person's essence. And the modern expression of that is a brand. When you hear a brand, it is supposed to be expressed in colors, design, and in such a presentation that you get a subjective reaction to it and you understand what the designers want you to understand so that when you see Amazon and it's got that little smile, and you're supposed to get this warm and fuzzy, every time I order, it's going to be fun. And I like getting things delivered. And that's what they want you to get. Amazon equals fun. It also equals money. But that's, that's something else. Or Rolex. When you get Rolex on your wrist, you become a player. A nautical person, even though you don't own a boat. Or you've got the pilot's watch so that you really have clout, even though, you know, you don't fly a plane. But it's got that sort of pizzazz. So God has a brand, and you should think of all the things that have to do with God when you think of the brand, God. And the sum of that is that God is good. The Lord revealed himself to Moses, and he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Now that's what you should think of every time when you think of God. Gracious and merciful. Compassionate. He cares. You think, I ah, doesn't even know my name. That is false. He knows every cell in your body. He knew you before he made the world. He loved you before he made the world. His love is from everlasting to everlasting. That means he never started loving you. He has loved you forever. Now, this is the kind of thing that we take a long time to get. And we hear, okay, God loves you forever, and you go, okay, so what? When it should really flatten us on the floor and think, I am the direct object of divine, eternal love? Well, hey... I am not afraid of anything. I'm going to walk down dark alleys with 50-pound notes hanging out of my back pocket. Whom shall I fear? This is what David says in Psalm 27. So we we take a long time to get this. But this is what God wants to impress upon our hearts so we finally get it. God is so good that when his nation forgets him, that's a rude thing to do. And they go after other gods, which is a stupid thing to do, and then they're enslaved, and they're powerless, and they haven't got any leverage on God at all. God will still listen to them and save them. And you know why? It's because of his great name. Because God is a Savior who's compassionate and gracious. Now, every single time when he saves Israel, that's why. It's not because of Israel, it's because they're his people, and he is great. Does everybody get this? Now, God is not going to let his name be blasphemed. And Ezekiel goes off into the sunset. (laughs) There's just certain times I can't do this. You know what I mean? I'm like helpless. Okay. You know that God is going to win with Israel. Even though he says about them, this is not my words, they're stubborn and stiff-necked. Okay? I... I didn't make that up. I love the Jews. Okay? And God loves them too. That's why he's going to win. Every time God wins, you win. Did you know that? So you want him to win, no matter how stubborn or stiff-necked you are. You would say, can I lose, please, so that you win. Listen to what God says, how he's going to save Israel. This is Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God." when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Now, God says over and over again, you have profaned my name and all the nations have seen it, but I'm still going to save you for the sake of my name. And he finishes by saying, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Now God says, flat out, I am going to save you, but not because of you. Because of me. Now that is a solid Reason to expect that God will save. Because it's not based on you, it's based on Him. Now, see, this time Israel didn't go after false gods, they went after a political solution. And they still did wickedly. For solving the problem their way and not calling out to God. That's wicked. So look, if you are God's person, then he created you for his glory. This is what it says in Ephesians 1. He saves us according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That's why you exist. And then, because you're God's person, everything good in your life is going to come out of your relationship with God. So you're going to seek God for his leading and his wisdom and his saving. So when you need saving... You go help and God will save you. Now, the glory to this is that you do not have to figure out what you're going to do. The problem comes up, and you go, What am I going to do? And you start thinking, Can I ask somebody for the money? Uh, Can I get a second job? Uh, what am I going to do? Well, God says, you don't have to do that. Now, I worry about that. And everybody in the world worries about that. You know why? Because they don't have a God to turn to who's all-powerful and cares about them. So you can say, hey, I'm in trouble. He says, hey, I'm way ahead of you. Got a solution. No sweat. This is what you ought to do. See, I catch myself worrying, so that makes me a virtual atheist, because I'm living like there's no God, and I have to figure out my own solutions, I think this is going to work. Okay? Everybody out there is trusting in a false God who cannot help them, or the government, which is worse. And again, I'm not slamming a government, but no government is going to make you live forever. And that's your biggest problem. But with us, it's different because we're in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And you know what? He didn't save me because of me. He didn't save you because of you. He saved you for His great name. And therefore, you know that God is going to answer your prayers. Because it's for the sake of his name. If he doesn't answer your prayers and save you, then somebody could look at your life and say, huh, Savior, huh? Jesus Christ, the Savior? Like, what happened? He must not be any kind of a Savior, huh? And God takes that extremely seriously. So, He's not going to save me because I'm cute. but he will save me because of his name, which is good. And that's a greater reason than me. Because I'm not a big enough reason. God says, I don't have time to fuss with a speck of dust like you. But if it's his great name that's on the line, see, that's different. That's a bigger reason than me. Now what this also means is that we cannot dictate to God how to solve my problem. So that's his job. Does he not have superior wisdom? Superior power? And he has a million ways to solve my problem. Far beyond what I can think exceedingly abundantly beyond all that I could ask or think so I don't want to tell God what to do and say if you don't solve my problem like this then you're fired and I'm going to go to Moloch Moloch thinks I'm right he thinks I'm smart I'm getting theatrical there but you know, some people think that if God doesn't save me exactly the way I want to be saved, I'm not playing. It's like, <laughs> I'm sure glad you don't run the universe, but I'll we'll be dead. All right? And I think, you know, I just want my problems solved. I've noticed this about myself. If I just solved my problems, then my life would be great, and that's all I want. And what God is saying is, that is so small. That doesn't present God to the nations. That's just you living in a nice house, with a nice fence, 2.2 kids, a car, and a refrigerator. It's like, what's that? But what God wants to do is show the world that there is a God who lives and His name is Jesus Christ. And He is a Savior and the only one. And that is why you exist. To demonstrate that to anybody who looks. They can say, okay, there's a God. I believe that. Now, to just want your problem solved is great wickedness. And instead, the whole issue is, God, be revealed in my life. Now, you know, you can read about this kind of great wickedness throughout the Bible. A very famous instance of it is in Second Chronicles 16. You can read this later. Uh, it concerns a king named Asa, who was marvelously helped by God against an army of a million men. 2 Chronicles 16. And after that he says, we're going to follow the Lord and if anybody doesn't seek the Lord he's going to be put to death. And everybody said, yeah! But then in his 36th year when he was menaced by the northern kingdom of Israel, he makes a political deal with the king of Syria and says, I'm going to pay you this. You attack him. And he solved his problem. But the prophet comes to him and says, you know what? You've done wickedly and foolishly. And from now on, you're going to have many wars. He solved his own problem. So... Jesus wants to solve your problems so that the world knows he is God. Are you okay with that? Now, it doesn't mean that you don't do anything and just sit there and say, okay, you solved my problems. I'm going to float like a jellyfish. Funny enough, you have to do everything that you would do. But it's this thing that God is going to lead you and guide you and show you what to do. So we cooperate with God. He knows what he's doing. We want to cooperate with him. Now, Samuel's great command here in verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. That is who you are. That is your context. Four, consider what great things he has done for you. Now, that's an important command. What he's saying there is know your history. Know your history. Remember it. Because this is the context for your present situation. This is why you're in the situation you're in right now. Because you're God's person, if you have received Jesus. And therefore, this is not some random thing that went wrong when God forgot about you and dropped you on your head. There's a reason and a purpose in this. And therefore, you can expect God to help you. And it isn't presumption. Even as Israel sinned and would come into the power of someone else, they could pray to him and he would save them. And he would never say, you stupid people. You're so foolish and wicked. No, he'd just say, okay, I'm going to send a guy and save you. See, he's going to save you. That's who he is. So listen. you got to remember your history with God. And I would say, do this get a notebook and start writing down in it all the good things that God has done for you. Go back as far as you can and as you start thinking about it you're gonna remember amazing things that blew your mind then and still blow your mind now. And you know if you do this you're gonna realize Your context. Because what we do is we just forget all the good stuff that God's done for us. And that's why we freak out now. Now, if you do this young enough in life, when you get done with your life, you're going to have volumes of good things that God has done for you. I've got volumes. I've sort of had to keep track of it for the last 40 years or so because that's what I do. But seriously, God has done some insane things in your life. And if you remember that stuff, that past becomes the promise for the future. And you're not going to lose your grasp on who you are and where you're at. Does everybody get me? So you don't have to solve your own problem today. You might become happy today. (laughs) Happy, me, the same existence? (laughs) Rob just blew up. it this week. Every time you get into a spot, you say, okay, you solve my problem. And God goes, my first name is Savior. That's who he is. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are compassionate and gracious. And we are sorry today that we lose sight of that. That we don't think about all the times you have saved us in the past, and how relieved we were, and how amazed we were. It's been okay, but it hasn't been permanent. And today, Lord, I am much more encouraged to give you all my problems and me so that you will fulfill your purpose and that you will be known among the nations and revealed in my life. So, I can truly say the best part about me is somebody else. But today, Heavenly Father, please draw us close to Jesus and wash us and cleanse us from trying to figure out our own solutions trying to solve our problems. And instead, Lord, you do it. We want to commit ourselves into your hand. The best place to be. In Jesus' name, amen.